opening. <laughs> nice one, Pronto. It's nothing. <laughs> On your mark, knocked. Uh -huh. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Geekery in general, and uh, I am Al, and today we're going to be talking about video role-playing games. And they have changed a lot over the years, as you can probably notice from that audio we had at the intro, uh, just give you a little idea of what it was like if you were playing Final Fantasy 1 on the NES back in the day, going to the uh, latest one, Final Fantasy 15. So quite a bit of difference. And RPGs have been through a lot of changes over the uh, several decades that video games have been around, and to help me discuss this topic. I've brought uh, two guests in from a podcast that I listen to. So from the Destination Unknown podcast, uh, we've got Dave and Gabe. So how are you guys doing this fine, wonderful Saturday afternoon? Doing fantastic. Yeah, yeah, doing well. I'm uh, really excited to uh, to be on the show. Thanks so much for having us on. You're welcome. And now, uh, just to give you guys a little background, so I've uh, the episodes I've listened to, it sounds like you guys have had some experience in the video game industry as a whole, not just necessarily as uh, you know, just a customer and playing it. Uh, I know you guys have mentioned. And I apologize, I'm still putting the name with the voices here, but you had worked at a store, Game Crazy, and didn't one of you guys work for, like, EA or another company? Yeah, uh, so Dave here, so you can get used to my voice. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've been in the video game industry for over 20 years. Uh, so, I, of course, I, I go back as, as early as the age of four as a, as a player and, and having loads of fun. Uh, just doing that. And I, I loved it enough to kind of pursue a, a career out of it. And I started working in video game retail. Uh, game Crazy was kind of my my primary home. I, I did do a spell at GameStop. But uh, yeah, I worked at Game Crazy for a number of years. And then uh, once that company went away, uh, I was kind of left wondering what next. And, uh, and so I kind of pursued my next passion, uh, which was uh, Bioware, uh, a, a company that I just know and, and love so well. And uh, so I, I was able to uh, to kind of make that transition from retail into the uh, the publishing and development side. So I was there at EA for about four and a half years. Excellent. Well, just to jump in real quick, this is Gabe here. And, and for me, I, I come from a strictly a retail background in terms of professional interaction with games. Uh, for about a decade, I managed stores for GameStop, EV Games, Game Crazy. Uh, so just just spent about a decade talking to thousands and thousands of customers about games as well as playing my own. So just got uh, some some good feedback from the consumers there. Yeah, and I can see. I mean, that's that's could probably be an entire topic uh, for a show. Just working in the the game retail because uh, I've never I've never worked in any sort of. Uh, well, I've worked in retail, but never anything doing video games. But I know one of the things I've always enjoyed when I have gone into video game stores, whether, well, the first one I remember was Babbage's, and then we had Funco Land, 
and I think wasn't Funko Land bought out by GameStop? Yeah, I believe yeah. that's correct. So one of the things I've always liked about the stores is, you know, you go in there and the employees I found were always, you know, very friendly, even when, you know, even when they were trying to sell you a subscription to Game Informer, but, you know, it was very easy to strike up a conversation and it was just as much fun just talking to the employees as actually, you know, shopping there. And so now when you guys were working in the retail industry, did you see video role-playing games? Were they, from your experience, were they pretty popular or was it more just something that you didn't see as many people really going after those games? Well, I just to, to jump in real quick, I'd say with the, the PlayStation 1 era, uh, for example, getting a good read on people in that type day and age, uh, the role-playing games were, were thriving. And I think Square was doing amazing things on the PS1. And just in general, the uh, the fertile ground that the PlayStation had for pretty much any developer. I mean, it ended its life with over a thousand titles available in the U.S. That they had plenty of room for anybody to make anything, and and there was there was plenty of money out there to be had in the role playing genre. Um, and in fact, you know, Dave and I were just talking this morning, and he was mentioning Vagrant Story, and just talking about how how if they were to remake it, there's a lot of things they could do to maybe make that a more marketable game. But, but back in the day, they may have even known that it wasn't going to be as maybe mainstream as many millions of copies as some other franchises might be, but they stuck to what they wanted to do anyway. And in doing so kind of created a superior product. And I would just say that back in that, that, that era of gaming, the developers were really putting a lot of heart into games, even sometimes where today they might make different decisions based on how much money they could make. Um, I, I think that just speaks to the the way that games were back then, and it was a really great symbiotic relationship between these publishers and developers that had an intent to deliver us great stories with great mechanics and gamers who had an appetite and an openness to that. And I, I don't know, I, I kind of feel like things have changed a bit in the industry lately, but yeah, I think RPGs were very, very healthy back in the day, and it was kind of a heyday in the Super Nintendo PS1 era for those. Yeah, I think Gabe uh, really hit the nail on the head there that the the PS1 era was so instrumental in the kind of the the uh, mainstream success of RPGs and and really just the kind of the accepted nature of, of something like that, a, a game that's built around a narrative that potentially could take you 40 to 100 hours, depending on how much time you're willing to put into it. And, you know, that just wasn't something that a, a lot of people were, if they weren't gravitating toward it it could have been just because they didn't even know an experience like that existed but uh, my first video game retail job uh, began in 1996 and at that point you know you were uh, we were just getting into the Nintendo 64 uh, groundswell uh, so the Super Nintendo had a, you know a mixture of RPGs that were kind of the definitive must-have games and and we would have a very small but dedicated portion of our audience, uh, you know, coming into the stores on a regular basis, trying to find, you know, th- that elusive copy of, of Final Fantasy III or uh, Chrono Trigger uh, or Lufia II, you know, something like that. Uh, but they weren't necessarily at that point in '96. They they weren't the games that people were were coming in in droves for. Uh, so it was kind of fascinating to watch how uh, the industry had changed and the, the type of consumers that were coming into our stores. Um, you know, back then, again, you, you had that 16-bit era customer uh, that was coming in still. Uh, the PlayStation was, was definitely healthy 
and and continuing to grow, but it was still only in its you know sophomore year at that point. So so much of our business was built around traditional platforming games and sports games and um boy, give it a couple more years there and and before we knew it, you know, we were just in that that heyday, like the, the golden age of RPGs, and they were cranking them out quickly and not just, you know, another RPG on the pile, like really good quality stuff. To your point, to your point, we even had things like uh, Final Fantasy Chronicles and Anthology popping up, whereas the previous generation, to Dave's point, they were not the mainstream attraction. And then we quickly got to the point where not that many years later, that was a cash in. That was just a, you know, a paycheck easily because they knew the audience was looking for them. Yeah, and I have to agree with you guys when you said that the the 16-bit era and in, and as we started to go into the PS1 era, how that was a golden age for video role-playing games, because that's, I know some of my favorite video RPGs I've played were from that era. Uh, some of my favorites were on the, the Super Nintendo. Now, I never had the opportunity to own a PlayStation, but... I've had friends who've owned it and, uh, you know, a lot of the games that they've talked about, you know, were really sounded like they were a lot of fun. Uh, Final Fantasy seven. Uh, there were a couple others. Wasn't Lunar, wasn't that on, uh, was that PS one or PS two? It was originally Sega CD, but okay. they did do a re-release of Lunar and Lunar two on PS one. Definitely. Okay. So yeah, I'm not as familiar with the CD. Like CD yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'm not as familiar <laughs> with the CD systems and the RPGs made there. So if I say something wrong, uh, feel free to correct nope. me. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, horror, or just horrifically bad puns. We've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. Well, let's let's first take a look at some of the influences from for RPGs. And now were either of you guys ever much into like the tabletop Dungeons and Dragons and other uh, RPGs like that of that nature? I dabbled in those a bit. Uh, Some Robotech was, was the main thing that I spent time with. And even then I wasn't the heaviest, but I I certainly enjoyed what time I did spend with it. Yeah. My exposure was a little bit more limited. I definitely had some friends uh, in my younger years that were, were really into it and they tried, you know, desperately to, to get me into it as well. And for me, uh, I, I found that I just wasn't at a stage that I, I could rely on my imagination uh, I think part of that is because as far back as I can remember, you know, I, I'd grown up with a controller in hand and, and always had something, you know, some sort of visual stimulation on screen. So uh, being put in a in a room around a table with, you know, some friends that are kind of acting out games in in real time, it was it was very jarring at first. 
<laughs> and then like as I got a little older, it was like, okay, cool. No, I I do understand now. It just it took me a little while to be able to wrap my head around it. Yeah, because I've been a hardcore tabletop uh, role player for many years. I was first introduced to it. I'd say sometime when I was maybe like eight, nine years old, uh, we had some, well, my older cousin and then also family friends when uh, I would go to their house and they had to watch me while they would sometimes have their friends over and play, they would play D&D. And even though I maybe wasn't really sure what was going on, I just thought it was cool listening to them tell these stories and talk about how, okay, I fire my bow at the giant or, you know, I, I charged the dragon with my sword, uh, though I didn't really start getting super involved in it until around the middle school era. But that was one of the things that really turned me on to, uh, to video role-playing games. And from what I understand, that's where a lot of our, a lot of the earlier ones on the PCs really got their start. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like there's one that it was just called Dungeon. Um, that I think is considered either the first or one of the first video RPGs. And another one that really popularized it, uh, Rogue, which actually gave yeah. rise to an entire, uh, <laughs> you know, entire genre called roguelike games. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I, I think, I think that a lot of people might, or at least for myself, when I think about early PC role-playing games, um, did, did you ever do any MUDs? I never have, um, actually I, my family never owned a computer until I was almost out of high school. So I had friends who had computers and I would, sometimes watch them play the games but i never actually uh got too much into role-playing games on the computer i was always a console gamer the fair enough yeah the only one that i ever really got into uh, at least when i was a kid was castle of the winds Mm, i don't know if i know that one yeah it was a it was a freeware and it was actually a very fun game i think because one of the the, the well, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. Like the trademarks or the features of your roguelike games is the the levels were always randomly generated, and right. that's what Castle of the Winds did. Now it was actually a two part game where the first one was freeware, and you were an orphan, uh, you know, living with your adopted parents, and one day you come back, you find out they've been. Uh, killed and the family medallion has been taken. So you have to go to this mine and uh, it draws heavily on Norse mythology. So you go in, you fight all these giants and such, and you find out that you're actually the heir to a kingdom. And that's where the second one takes place. I think it's available as a free download now. I haven't looked for it any time recently, but it's something that I think is fun to check out if you're into that type of uh, gameplay. Yeah, I think I think back to early PC role playing games. They're they're relatively text heavy. I mean, that's going to be I think due due in part to technology not being as advanced. Whereas, say Final Fantasy fifteen, for example, represents a large amount of what you take in just visually through the characters, their movements, and people speak more about the graphics and the soundtrack than they do the writing in a game these days. Whereas back then that was really the focal point and kind of taking, like you said, from tabletop that that's, that's actually the content is what's happening and where you are and what you have with you. And these are things that 
can be conveyed by text. And I think that was also a big barrier uh, to a lot of gamers back in the day. I mean, I'm, I'm 42 that I was born in 76. So I was there for the Atari. I was there for the Commodore, the Vic 20, the IBM. And, and I'm like you, I'm a console gamer by nature. And part of that reason was because I put my game in and it turned on and played and I didn't have to boot things up. And it was just a less, less of a barrier to entry. And again, I think the text in those early RPG games kind of made it harder for them to go mainstream at the time. Yeah. Something that today, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. I was just saying you're right when you mentioned how, uh, one of the nice things about, well, and well, I guess when we talk about computers is, uh, people who are used to the, you know, computers nowadays and maybe never had a, had to use one of those older computers, you had to have a bit more technical knowledge because before, you know, as I recall, before the, uh, you know, the Windows GUI style environment became popular and widespread, just about everything was command line interface. So, oh, yeah. You know, so yeah, it was a lot harder to, you know, get into that. But where, yeah, you've got an Atari 2600, well, you pop in the, uh, pop in the game, hit power, and there you go. And then you had Venture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, I mean I, granted, it, it I was think... was one of my first. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's Now, again, that's... One of the things about role-playing games and just the way they've developed is, yeah, you've got, you've got a lot of, I think, um, blurred lines, I guess you could say, where people are going to have different... Uh, different definitions of what considers a, you know, what's considered an RPG. So uh, when, right. you, when you mentioned venture, would you consider that a role-playing game or more just kind of like a, well, like a proto RPG? I, I think honestly, if you were to try to define it by what we come to know today as, as a role-playing game, it, it certainly doesn't fit the criteria. Uh, but I think if, if you go back and try to imagine a, a world where, that game exists and everything that's come after it doesn't, you know, if you can try to separate yourself from what, what, you know, it really was for at least a home console market, an early building block of what an RPG could be. And, and I think a big part of that is, it's not even getting into the battle systems yet. It's really just kind of coming up with a, a very basic kind of high fantasy sort of narrative, you know, something that, I, I think was a huge influence on, um, you know, kind of later uh, games that you that you absolutely would consider uh, role playing games. So in that regards, I I would consider it a maybe a a great great grandfather <laughs> to <laughs> you know, to the the genre we know and love, but um, certainly it pales in comparison to you know when the genre really started to get a definition. Yeah, and who can I forget think being any- chased by a duck? You know. Yeah, right. <laughs> Somebody get this freaking duck away from me! Sorry. It, it, it took till Sweet in 3 to make ducks cool in RPGs, right? So, <laughs> Well, I think, I think RPGs have the broadest range of definitions. Maybe when I think about, about what genres, racing, sports, action, adventure, shooters, there's definitely evolution in each of these little sub-genres. But for RPGs, to go from pen and paper to MMO RPGs online to Japanese RPGs, to action role-playing games. There's so many different RPGs that it's a legitimate disagreement between people as to what an RPG is, depending on what you define it as yourself. And that's, 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 that's awesome, in my opinion. Yeah, because... Uh, oh, go ahead. 
I would say for the MMO player, uh, they, they, I think are getting a lot more from the social interaction, obviously, than, uh, you know, role playing games to me have always been kind of a solitude. I I play by myself. I put those hours in on seven. I put those hours in on Chrono Trigger. I put those hours in on Grandia and it was all me, but somebody who plays WoW, I wonder if a 16 year old who grew up playing WoW would have grown up playing RPGs if they were more, uh, that that one player experience that it was back on the PS1. So, uh, and similarly, there's probably people who didn't play RPGs back in the PS1 era that got around to WoW when that came out because the flavors were that different that the genre was not the same to them. Yeah, and I think that, because again, you make a good point with like, because with gaming, you know, like console games, yeah, they are more or less a, uh, you know, an individual activity, but when you do look at, the, I mean, I've never played, really played any MMOs for, uh, we recently got Xbox Live. So for Final Fantasy 15, we've been trying to get into the Comrades expansion. And I think that is, you can actually play online with people there. Um, but like, I've never played World of Warcraft or, you know, EverQuest, you know, heard a lot about them. But I mean, I think how, I do like that social element it does bring to it. Um, cause again, most art video RPGs for the consoles, yeah, they're single player. I know there've been a couple like, uh, Final Fantasy six gave you the option where you could give, uh, you could put some characters in control of the player too. But for the most part, yeah, it's, it was always just me sitting in my room or my basement with a control pad. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it is true because it, I, I think that. By the very nature of, of gaming at, at an early age, you, you were looking for multiplayer experiences. And, you know, the, the idea of a, a role-playing game where, again, we're talking anywhere between, you know, maybe, maybe 20, 40-plus hours uh, all by yourself just didn't really sound like a, a, a great experience when you were at, at an age where just being social is, is just bread and butter with being alive. So... Uh, for me, uh, you know, it was right around, God, I want to say Secret of Mana uh, in the Super Nintendo era where it was like, man, like I love RPGs already, you know, by that point. And here's an opportunity to play, uh, you know, more of, a, of an action RPG with up to, you know, three players uh, with a multi-tap. And, and that was completely unheard of uh, back in those days. But uh, such a cool way uh, to take that genre to a level where you didn't have to play isolated. Um, you know, it, it was a way to do couch co-op. Yeah, and you, you know, you mentioned the action RPG, which is one of the things I wanted to talk a little about, little bit about. So, hey, what better time than the present? Because uh, <laughs> we talked before how, like, you've got all these lift, you know, boundaries. You know, you've got your text-based RPGs, you've got your roguelikes. Um, I mean, I'm sure we can a little later we can get into the whole. Japanese RPGs versus Western RPGs, but that's another uh, one of those categories, uh, the action RPG, which I guess depending on who you ask, some people consider them RPGs, others consider them kind of their own separate animal. I personally, mm-hmm. I would consider them part of the RPG, RPG, RPG genre, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I like what, you know, I like what you brought up. It was, you know, it was an RPG that, yeah, you could sit down with a couple of friends and, you know, play it right there. 
Yeah, I think yeah, it's and, a Baldur's, Baldur's Gate on consoles. Am I right, Dave? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so the, the Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate on PC was a, was a very heavy, very uh, text heavy, uh, deep experience for an individual where you could control multiple characters and, quite frankly, would be over the head of, of many gamers. Uh, but just a visually stunning and just an amazing world to wander around in. Now you fast forward uh, to PS2. And they bring out the Baldur's Gate franchise on PS2, GameCube, and it's now a two-player co-op dungeon crawler, kind of playing more in the vein of a gauntlet game than, than the traditional uh, Bioware role-playing games they brought out for PCs. And this, this, to a lot of people, was probably blasphemy and dumbed it down considerably, and it, it certainly did. But it also made it far more manageable and uh, easier to, to drop in and play some two-player co-op and I played to that game multiple times with multiple different people, multiple different characters with each of those same people, because no matter who it was I sat down with, there was something to, to get out of that. So uh, there we have even one franchise you know, portraying itself in many different lights and, and kind of hitting a home run every single time, by the way. Those Baldur's Gate games are just amazing, but different, different times for different uh, or different game styles for different times, I think. Yeah, and the only one of the Baldur's Gates ones I played was Dark Alliance, which, and I guess it did have a sequel, which overall, I enjoyed it. I mean, granted, it's not, you know, it's only really kind of loosely based on D&D, but I still mm-hmm. thought it was a fun game to play through. Well, and I think I think one of the core things to role-playing, because I think part of the, the subject here is just what is a role-playing game and how far can we stretch the definition i think of i think of stats i think of character development and and when i think of an action role-playing game i can appreciate where the baldur's gate dark alliance has has a bare bones storyline you know I, some generic guys waiting at the end of this dungeon where he, he's going to say five weird sentences and we're going to beat him and it doesn't matter who he was so that's not so much about the story whereas i think of jrpgs and I think of really elegant plot twists and setting up stories with five hours of cinema scenes throughout the game. And, you know, so you can really have different uh, levels of, of character development and story for me. But at the core of it, I always want to have that character development in terms of what my stats are. And I think that's where these action RPGs often have skill trees like Baldur's Gate. Half the fun was just figuring out if I was going to go with the ice arrows and seeing how far I could level this up, or if I'm going to go with the lightning arrows, or whatever path I choose for the actual combat itself. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I think is essential for anything that would be considered an RPG. There has to be some sort of character development progression. Now, I suppose we could look at it, you look at some of the early ones like Dragon Warrior, or uh, Ultima, or Wizardry, where pretty much your main... Um, you know, your main progression is just you're gaining a few levels. And you're gaining levels, you get more hit points, you get better attack, whatever. But that's one of the things where I really like how the RPGs have changed. How you you mentioned the you read the skill trees. Mm-hmm. You know, and how you can choose how you want to uh develop your character, whether you want to I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head. Um one of the Lord of the Rings games, Tales of the Third Age. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because as I recall with that one, it gave you that option where, you know, you, you okay, you leveled up your party and then you could start to branch off and decide how you wanted to develop your characters. So that's one of the things I really like is how we've seen games progress. Yeah, and to a point that you, you had made earlier about how, 
you, you personally count uh, action RPGs as as part of the greater RPG genre, and and I agree a hundred percent because I, I think that there definitely is uh, a contingent that would argue that uh, the true definition of a role playing game, uh, at least in the video uh, field, would be anything turn based, and I, I agree that. Turn-based RPGs is probably how most of us were exposed uh, to to RPGs in our youth, but I think that there's so much expansion uh, that is incorporated. And for me, the the very definition of a role-playing game is anything where I'm at the helm of customizing my character uh, characters, depending on what game I'm playing. Uh, that there is some type of uh, progression happening. There's some kind of level up uh, happening or, or, or skills increasing, that kind of thing. Because if, if you don't count action RPGs as, as part of the genre, I feel like you're excluding a lot of instant classics. And, 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 and obviously Legend of Zelda being the most obvious, but I, I would also throw uh, Alundra in, in that discussion, uh, which is a, a very highly overlooked and underappreciated action RPG from the PS1 era that had Zelda never existed, I, I think there's a chance we could have been looking at this game as a textbook example of what an action RPG could be. I, I wonder about Zelda being included in the role-playing myself. I, I actually would consider that more of, I guess, a, a, a pure adventure game. And, and I think it's a very, fine, very, very fine line. Uh, Crystallis, back on the original NES, was an SNK jam that had a perfect mix of the original Final Fantasy and the original Zelda. Top-down view, sword-wielding action like the Zelda, but you go to villages that get progressively deeper in what, what spells they have, what equipment you find in the shops. There is an equipment shop. There is a healing inn. You know, it had a lot of the uh, mainstays that you find in both role-playing games and action games. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I can totally understand, and I'm sure there's millions of people out there who categorize Zelda as a role-playing, but for me, without the, the unique character development, we're all going to get the Master Sword, we're all going to get that shield, we're all going to get that slingshot, and my name may not be Link, but we know who that guy is. So to me, there's not a lot of the role-playing development in that one. Yeah, and, and I agree, and I'm glad that... I, I'm glad you brought up Crystallis. That was another one of my favorite games from back in the NES era, and I, I mean, I think I would be, I would agree with you there where Zelda falls more in the, the adventure game where, yeah, the only real interactions you had were with shopkeepers. Occasionally you found the old men that would give you stuff. Um, and then of course, you know, occasionally you'd, uh, find a, a hidden door, you go in it and there's some guy in there demanding that you pay a door repair charge where, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that's one of the things I always remember about Zelda. Of course, it had that little, you know, tone whenever you found something, you know, a hidden object or a hidden doorway. And there was always that, at least your first time playing through it, there was always that uh, that stress that, okay, is it going to be a moblin that's going to give me some uh, money or is it going to be someone, you know, wanting me to pay because I broke his door down? <laughs> right. Well, is it, and even today, not 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 to you know just just uh, shoot you down on that Zelda thing. How about uh, Adventures of Link? Now, now that goes in some ways more traditional action game, just being a side scrolling. Some might say, but then you do go to that more traditional world map, 
again, where you're going to find different villages. And it's going to be a place to heal, place to get a new magic spell, blah, blah, blah. So I think the second one, and that's where it's even a, it's even too broad a statement for me to say Zelda I don't categorize as because some Zelda I will, actually. So, you know, to, to your point, I mean, that's just how hard it is. Even multiple games in the same franchise can, can fall into different categories for yep. me. So. And with both uh, Crystallis and Adventure of Link, one of the things they share there is, yeah, you've got the villages where you can interact with people. Granted, sometimes they're just going to give you useless information, but, you know, there's, as I recall, there's some places where you have to, you know, where you have to talk to people because that's going to cause a tr- an event to trigger. Or you have to talk to them because it's going to give you a vital clue that you need to progress in the game. And one of the things I liked about Crystallis is how you had that one spell you got that let you change into one of four characters, which, again, yeah. it, you know, what you you would sometimes get different reactions based on who you were, uh, you know, whose appearance you were taking. And there were some parts in the game where you needed to turn into, you know, a certain character in order to progress. You know, I got to say, Dave, we were talking earlier about what franchise would like to see a reboot or remake. And I got to say a contemporary take on Crystallis could be life changing if they did it right, by the way. Just got to say that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And that's one thing I actually wanted to talk about a little later, too, is because, you know, we live in the age now of remakes and reboots. And I, cause I know they're, they're planning that reboot of fi- or that remake of Final Fantasy VII, which I last I heard. Wait, I they're guess, working on what? They're making the remake of Final <laughs> Fantasy VII. Just kidding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been waiting anxiously for years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and when we talk about, when we go back and look at, uh, one of the things that's definitely changed about them, the presentation and not just, this is just going beyond graphics because obviously, you know, your NES is not going to get the same graphics that you're going to get on an Xbox one or a PS four. But, you know, they did go from that, you know, a lot of the earlier ones were either the overhead or the first person views, but then eventually you started to get into more of the third person and the top down views. Like with, um, I guess one of the ones that would always uh, come to mind for me would be now, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the Ultima series. If you've ever played many of those games. Years ago. Yeah. Cause I've, I played the ones for the NES and I did like there how they, it did switch between the presentation style where you know, you had the, you know, during your battles and stuff and on the overall map, it was all overhead view, but then you went into the 3D. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been very good at the 3D mazes, so I always tend to get lost in them. So that's why I liked it when they did make the auto map features. Well, yeah, and that's that's where, I'm sorry, yeah, I just say that's the franchises in themselves can vary in what they present to you. And and again, I can't think of of a type Type of game, a style of game that's got more opportunity for the, the 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 consumers to learn to be finicky about what they expect from them. You know, I mean, Zelda to Metro or Mario to Metroid, at least on the NES, was people running sideways and jumping, right? And there's there's a real consistency, even in the differences those games have with what what you know to say. Well, you like this, you might like this. Now, we, something as as nuanced as what you just talked about with the 3D maps. 
may not even register as, a, as an issue or something to be acknowledged by somebody else who's never played enough role-playing games to uh, call that out as a variance in, in being different, and that's not how they traditionally do it. Um, or to have experienced a better way of dealing with it that wasn't as frustrating. So, um, you know, and whereas Dave might not say that to keep going back to Zelda as a role-playing game, but again, millions of people agree with Dave in that statement, and in even certain Zelda games, I do too. So there's that just there's so many different things that can be a role-playing game that you can't, it's just like music. You can't tell me what's good and what's bad. And I can't tell you what's good and bad, but you can tell me what you thought was bad. And I hear what you're saying about that map and I get it. Yeah. And in a way though, the, the thing I do kind of like about it in a certain way is it almost really throws back to the old, uh, it's roots as well, the inspiration coming from like dungeons and dragons. Cause if you have ever played like an old school D and D session, usually what, the game master does is okay he'll be like okay you enter the dungeon and 20 feet you know you the the you know the corridor continues and then 20 feet uh it branches to the left and branches to the right and depending on the game master they're not always going to draw the map out for you they expect you to make the map yourself and if you get lost in the dungeon because no one in the party decided to make a map well then you know that's your tough cookies and i guess i could that's one of the things I do have to hand to the 3D perspective in the mazes. It does call back to the old, old, good old, old school D and D. Well, you start talking about 3D maps, and and my brain uh, it goes back in fear uh, to the original <laughs> Fantasy Star on, on the Sega exactly. Master System. And, and and that to me that is still one of my all time favorite RPGs, but. Back in those days, like everything was two-dimensional, uh, sprite-based games. So, you know, you you really didn't know what, what to expect when you got this game that's advertising as one of its unique selling points that it's got full 3D dungeons, and your brain just can't process what does that really mean. And I remember, you know, playing that game, uh, very traditional for for the majority of it, and then you go into your first dungeon. And it's like, whoa, like, wait a second, like, what's happening here? Uh, and, and it is easy, like you said earlier, very easy to get lost. And if you're the kind of person who is meticulously uh, drawing maps as you go, uh, like, yeah, those absolutely would come in handy. And then I certainly had friends that, that did that. But the other mechanic that just drove me crazy with Fantasy Star is that you always had that really cool feeling of going through the dungeon and like finding the staircase that takes you to the next level because you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm making progress now. And pretty soon when you get to the end of that dungeon, there's going to be a set of doors. And then you're really excited because now you know you've completed the dungeon. And either there's going to be a, a, a boss on that other side or, or maybe a treasure or maybe just maybe it's going to take you to another part of the map. You know, you don't know till you get there. But what they did, these evil, evil developers, is they put in traps. <laughs> <laughs> and you know you'll be running through this 3d map and all of a sudden you drop down a level without any idea what just happened to you and now you have to backtrack and and if you trigger that trap door it doesn't go away it's still there you have to wait till either you use an item to defuse the trap which requires you to remember where it was and take very cautious steps uh, or you had a character that could uh, cast a spell but anyway just to say that that really 
both excited and turned me off to 3D maps in my younger days. <laughs> yeah, Wizardry for the NES was like that, too, where, and I guess they've done this in the entire Wizardry series, where, yeah, you'll, you have to know where the traps are, or you have to have a thief in your party and hope he catches them, because they had, I know they were big on the teleportation traps, so you had to be really careful with that. And And since the entire maze, it was just the same texture on the wall, it was very it was very easy to get lost in that game. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I'd have to say one of my favorite games when you do talk about how it does have the 3D segments, though, uh, if you've ever played Pool of Radiance for the NES. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. And I, one of the things I liked about that is, yeah, it did have the auto map feature where you could switch to the overhead view, at least in most areas. But I just thought this was kind of, this was a cool uh, little detail where when you went into the battle scenes, the battle, the, the map changed to what's like an isometric view of the maze that you were in. So I know it's just like a minor little detail, but I always thought that was a, um, I always thought that was a, a nice little touch on the game. Yeah, and something else I would say, uh, sorry, just bringing up Fantasy Star made me think of something else that I kind of feel like is missing from RPGs, and that's that. Uh, you know, you, every RPG has towns full of people that have some kind of saying or conversation piece. And, and most of the time, it's just kind of like just useless garbage. Like, oh, I can't find my cat. And, and then, like, <laughs> that's it, you know. And, and, and maybe, you know, you find the cat somewhere and it's just kind of like a little visual uh, relief for you as the player. But I, I miss when that mattered when going to a new town and talking to all the the people walking around could contain valuable information. And I'm not talking about some of the later games where uh, an NPC might say something that's highlighted in purple so that you know that one word they just said is important for you to remember. I'm talking like actually going to a town, paying attention to what these characters say, and just being able to either retain it or not, depending on your level of of uh, immersion in this world and fantasy star had uh, a way of doing that in a way that felt so rewarding if you were paying attention and i remember they had an ice planet of course every rpg has an ice planet right <laughs> uh but they had an ice planet and if you talk to the the npcs before you get to that planet they may warn you that like i hear the people that live on this planet are liars like they don't they don't like outsiders and they're going to tell you bs so one of the first dungeons you go to, uh, once you get to this ice planet, you meet one of the, the residents and he tells you, like, be careful. I saw an enemy up ahead. Like, don't turn right. Yeah. And you that... think, it... yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just going to say, like, you know, so so you're thinking, like, oh, crap. Well, don't turn right. Then I'm absolutely going left when I get to the to the end of the of the corridor. And if you do, you fall down. 20 consecutive trapdoors. Yeah, that reminds me of a couple things, actually. Uh, first, if you've ever played Swords and Serpents for the NES, there's <laughs> there's like the one section where it says never do anything right, and it's like if you go right at the next passage, it takes you down this long like monster and trap-ridden hallway, and you get to the end, and it says, see, I said never do anything right. But when you talk about everyone being liars... Uh, that just brought to mind uh, Final Fantasy VI, The Town of Zozo. Yeah. You know, how you got the clock puzzle that you have to solve. 
Uh, I think you get the chainsaw when you solve it. But yeah, everyone's like, my watch says it's five o'clock. And okay, so well, we know everyone's lying. So it's not going to be that time. Because <laughs> I remember you actually had a, one of the towns before Zozo. You talked to a random townsperson. He's like, you know, a bunch of liars in Zozo. You can't trust them. Yeah, I, I miss that stuff. You know, just like the, the little the little nuances that just make it feel like this complete, you know, package that you're you're getting yourself immersed in. Yeah, it makes it feel like a world where you know the uh, people in one town they're aware of things that are in other towns. Um, you know, because I occasionally you might run into a game where okay, it seems like there's no connection between the towns. So people in the first town you visit. They know nothing about the next town you would go to. But, yeah, it is nice when there is that interconnectedness between where, yeah, they're like, oh, you're going to this town. Well, be sure to stop and see this person or, you know, do whatever. Well, and to, to Dave's point, I think that that adds to the experience of playing the role. If it's left to you as the gamer in the moment to, to, to be aware of what's being said and understand the implications, you know. It's it's in in uh, Ocarina of Time, for example, you're not going to get confused and, and never go to Zora's water domain. You will end up there. Absolutely. Even if you're the least informed gamer on Earth, you will end up there. <laughs> Whereas in, in role playing games, the, they actually give subtle clues and there's not so so straight a path in the game. And I, and I think that that provides a greater sense of satisfaction and a greater uh, sense of investment in the progression of events. I never walked away from a Zelda saying, Hey, did you see how smart I was? I figured out how to get to the mountain. You know I mean? I guess, but, but everybody did. So <laughs> no, it's true because I, I'm sorry. I'm just going to add to that to, to your point real quick, you know, final fantasy seven, right? Like that, that's a game that you would think that everyone who has ever played it just tore that game apart, you know, like uh, town by town, world by world, whatever. And and that's not the case. Like I I know people in 2018, they're like, who's this vampire guy that I keep seeing in all this like Final Fantasy like artwork? And I'm like, Vincent, like is that is that the vampire guy you're talking about? And they had no idea that you could recruit Vincent. So it, it's just it just goes to show you another one of those things where if you're paying attention and and you know you you do the right things and you know if if you chase after you know Yuffie and what if you do that stuff, you can you know experience elements of the game that are are not so obvious. I mean, they seem obvious to us. You know, in retrospect, we're talking about a game that we played countless times in 21 years. But but there's people that just never never got that far, never did it. Like oh that 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 ninja girl just stole my stuff. It sucked. I had to start over. <laughs> so one of the things that defines role playing games, you're going to do a lot of battling and. This is one of the things that I I think makes role-playing games, well, I, th- I think it made it harder for them to really get widespread approval because you've heard the term grinding, of course. You know, oh, where, yeah, yeah. Yep, where you, you know, you're walking around in circles fighting enemies for an hour so you can gain enough levels to fight the next boss. And this is one of the things that I like how role-playing games have progressed where you look at some of their earlier ones like Wizardry or Dragon Warrior where, you know, again, it does have that, you know, that, uh, you know, first-person view, but then we start to move into the one where, okay, everyone's standing in a line uh, taking their turns, and but you can actually see them swinging their swords and casting their spells. So I think the one we're looking at, some of the games from the 16-bit era, 
the one that really took the battlefield mechanics and really just did it perfectly, Chrono Trigger. Mm. So, and because the thing I liked so much about it, and I, I think you guys have probably talked about this on your show as well, is how you look at a lot of the earlier games, like, you know, Final Fantasy. Okay, well, maybe sometimes you might be attacked from behind, or Final Fantasy VI introduced pincer attacks, but uh, the thing I liked about the battlefield mechanics in Chrono Trigger is how, you know, the enemies would move around, which forced you to a, to change your tactics. Because, uh, of course, you had your different techniques, but they had different areas of effect. Yeah, for sure. I, I think Chrono Trigger in particular really broke uh, new ground in the RPG genre uh, which is, uh, I mean, it's a shame it was so late in the Super Nintendo cycle at that point, but uh, it, it really laid groundwork uh, to me was was kind of like the the ultimate uh, example of what they had been trying to do with all their previous you know games uh, of, of that style. And something about taking away random battles and replacing it with an active time battle system where you are in control of everything that's happening because you can see your enemies on screen at all times. They're, you're not going to run into a, a section where you may have something happen where you're forced into a, a fight. Uh, you know, there may be like a, a tree shaking and then pretty soon you've got an, an enemy there. But you, you weren't going to just be wandering around on the world map and then have like some random battle kind of like pull you out of that experience, take you to a completely separate screen where you do battle. It plays a little theme and you twirl your sword and then takes you, you know, like 10 more seconds of loading to put you back into the world map. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And I agree with you. I, I think it, it probably did it the best. Yeah. And, and that's um, say uh, like Final Fantasy 13. And 15 also have that same thing, which, you know, yeah, you're seeing the, uh, you can see where the enemies are. So if you decide you don't want to fight them, you can at least try to sneak by them. Yeah, exactly. Which, which is, is a non-traditional approach. Generally speaking, at least for the Super Nintendo and the PS1 era, we do think of the random battle taking you to another sequence of some kind for the battle. Um, but but I think, Dave, what you said about it being a shame that it came out so late in the uh, life cycle of the console, I agree in terms of its ability to reach the audience and who was still there waiting for it. But I, I, I have to say that it wouldn't have been what it was, to your point about it being the pinnacle of, of the evolution of, of at least Squaresoft RPGs at that point. It would not have been, and it would not have overcome these issues and created these new um, subtle changes like you know that conversation about being taken to another screen for combat they they so beautifully handled that by sliding the menu onto the scene the screen you're already on and that's that wouldn't have happened three years earlier just wouldn't have so no i totally agree yeah and i i have to say though as the games have evolved it, i think it almost becomes more enjoyable to watch uh, you know, especially, I'm just going to use Final Fantasy 15 as an example because I've been playing that, um, you know, a lot over the last uh, few weeks where, you know, you you take an older style game, you're just kind of sitting, you know, you're just watching them, okay, they step forward, they swing their sword, they go back to their place in line. You know, that's kind of boring, it gets boring watching that after a while. But, I mean, I enjoy watching my son play the game, 
because it has that more animated feel to it. And another one of the things I like about it is how they'll just sometimes randomly say things in battle. Um, And it just becomes a lot more enjoyable to watch as well as play. Mm -hmm. Well, you think about the original Final Fantasy, uh, where the characters simply stand in place until it's their turn to take three steps forward, (laughs) waggle their sword around and back up, which had its own (laughs) charm. And and for the day, no one at the time said, well, this is a bull animation, (laughs) pardon my language, but we we accepted it. We took it as just fine. Um, Then we, we move forward to Final Fantasy VII, and now the characters, like, Tifa stretches after a fight and Cloud's spinning his sword over his head and Barrett's over there pumping his gun fist. It's like even that much of an evolution in the animation made each battle a little more personable and it it endeared us to those characters to understand their personalities a little bit more. Oh, yeah. Um, And part of it, you know, that was was Cloud being a little cocky. That was Tifa (laughs) being, you know, just really good at fighting and not really focused on it. Just whatever is kind of casual. And Barrett just kind of being grumpy, like like the dialogue suggested with each of those people. So, (laughs) um, and I I, I assume that's continuing. I personally haven't played 15. I know Dave uh, enjoyed the heck out of that. So I'll probably leave that to you guys to chat about there. But yeah, you make a good point with like the the bat, you know, the victory dances where in the earlier ones, okay, everyone just kind of did their animation where they were raising their hands above their heads. <laughs> but it is nice when they do that at that little touch where, as you were mentioning with Seven, where you know they have their little thing that they do after the fight. And one game I've played a little bit of, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to play too far into it. Um, Arkrise Fantasia on the Wii where I remember from what I've played of that one, at the end of the battle, the person who, you know, got the last shot in, they have their little animation they do. And uh, Lord of the Rings, Tales of the Third Age did that as well, where the person who got the la- the killing blow on the last enemy in, they got their close-up with their victory dance. So when we move beyond the battlefield, though, we talked a lot about character development before. And this is one of the things where I really like how what we've seen in a lot of uh, games as they've progressed. And it's it goes more about above and beyond just getting a few more levels, getting a better attack, getting more hit points. But I like it how games started to introduce more moral choices into it. And the one game I can think of for that would be, well, my earliest example would probably be Quest of the Avatar. Um because you think about it, like, take an earlier game like Final Fantasy. Um, there's not really much in the way of moral choices. You've got these four heroes, and they're going to go out, they're going to fight a bunch of bad guys, and at the end of the quest, they're still good guys. But Quest of the Avatar, it introduced um, a morality system that really wasn't as common back then, I think. Because uh, have you, either of you played Quest of the Avatar? Not no. extensively, no. Okay. Cause, Checked it out years ago, but... Yeah, because basically the way it worked is it had this um, kind of complex system of virtues. And each of the companions that you got each represented a different virtue. And part of the thing is, well, you had to live up to those virtues. For example, in this game world, for some reason, uh, most of the shopkeepers and the spell component shops are blind. So whenever you buy something, you have to count out how much money you're going to give them. So if you're going to buy like 20 gold worth of spell components, 
you could very easily give them only 16 or 17. But the problem is, if you do that, it's going to take away your honesty virtue, which I know it has an effect on some of the sh some parts later in the game. But the reason you want to make sure you keep your virtues up, uh, like in that game, there's a, a mage named Mariah. And mages in this game represent the virtue of honesty. So if your honesty gets too low and you decide to take Mariah out of your party, she's not going to come back in until your honesty improves. Uh, another good example is Dup no, not Dupree, um, Jeff, the fighter. Jeff or Jeffrey, I forgot what his name was. But, of course, he represents courage. So if you run away from too many battles, then your courage drops, and then he won't rejoin your party if he leaves until your courage works back up again. And that was still pretty basic, but uh, let's talk about another really good game that I think introduced the moral choices and did a very good job at it, uh, Knights of the Old Republic. There's no no question that's probably one of the, the bigger checkpoints in people's minds for, for when that was introduced and implemented and, and accepted on a broad scale. And that's probably one of the more popular um, games that we can reference that people will know what we're talking about there. But without a doubt, they, they hit it out of the park. And, and what a what a what a you know paint job to put on a game. Well, guess what? You can have a light side or a dark side. Star Wars is the perfect franchise to use for that. Um, and, and especially since we grew up loving the bad guy, Darth Vader. I think it's a, it's a real unique one that, that my youngest son, when we played that together, he was the biggest Darth Vader fan in the world. And there was nothing cooler than, than to him than being a bad guy in a video game and having the ability to kind of fill those shoes. And I think that's kind of human nature to want to explore the good and the dark. You know, that's why, I, you know, we talked about Silent Hill extensively on our podcast. And again, that's part of the pull, just wanting to know more about the dark side of existence. So, um, yeah, I think that was great that they, they put you so awesomely in the middle of a story that let you take in the, the ride that they built for you, but let you dictate how that ride, what, what turns you took, uh, could significantly impact what you got out of the story. That, that, that was just a phenomenal experience. Okay. Yeah, that was that was a game changer for me. Uh, there, there's a handful of games that I can point to in my personal life and say those represented a huge shift in kind of how I approach video games as a player. Uh, we've already mentioned Chrono Trigger, uh, you know, which is 95, and and that was a huge eye-opening game for me uh, that that I used kind of going forward until 2003 when Knights of the Old Republic came along. And then it's like it compl another complete shift. Uh, it, it just it changed uh, my perception of what a video game could be, uh, and not just what it could be, what it should be. Um, so I uh, I will only look back on that title with the fondest of memories. Uh, and in exactly to your point, it it is one of those games. Uh, it represents a touch point for people. Uh, who maybe didn't have experience with a morality system or uh, or even implementing choice. Yeah. You know, you could you could play a 16-bit RPG uh, or even uh, or even 32, right? You, Final Fantasy VII gave you uh, a character may ask you a question and it's like, you know, do you do you see yourself as this this and this and you can say yes or no and it doesn't really change anything but the answer, right? It doesn't affect the gameplay at all. Uh, and something like this you know, where somebody asks you if, if you want to steal and if you say no, 
then you're you're suddenly light side or paragon or whatever. And, and if you say yes, now you're renegade or dark side. Uh, it had actual ramifications on your game. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I liked about what KOTOR did is it showed the descent into the the dark side or rising to the light side as gradual. You know, okay, so you early in the game you give money to a beggar. Okay, you get a couple light side points, but that's not necessarily going to make you this, you know, paragon of virtue. But what Knights 2 did that I really liked, the influence system where your different companions were, well, they would could be influenced by your actions. Uh, like one of my favorite parts in there was, uh, I think her name was Kreia. Mm-hmm. But um, at, when you're on Dantooine, you know, at, after you rescue the Jedi Master from the mercenaries, you know, you're leaving the cave. The mercenaries, they offer to, you know, they, they ask if you would, you'll work with them. And if you say yes, and if Kray is in the party, she compliments you and she's like, you know, well played. You know, both sides of the conflict rely on, are now depending on you for assistance. You can manipulate the outcome however you want. Where if you fight them instead, and if the handmaiden is in your party, again, she compliments you because she's like, you know, most people would, you know, wouldn't stand up, you know, stand up to them. And so I thought that was cool because then however you influence your characters, you could turn some of them into Jedi, which of course would be way more powerful than their normal character classes that they are. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, interestingly, we had a, a, a listener write in with a question for us this week asking about which we thought was more important, story or mechanics. And and it's obvious that both of them are, are you know, incredibly valuable, and, and it's up to interpretation for individuals to answer that. But uh, I think Knights of the Old Republic is just, again, a per- perfect example, because you look at the combat being just so unique and awesome, just reminiscent of that Parasite Eve thing where you had a real-time kind of turn-based, both happening at the same time. You could control, and, and they'd be shooting at you. You'd be dodging them while you're waiting for your turn to load up your next you know, attack you got queued. Uh, but then you, you take this mechanic that they built in that very few games had ever even waded into this with this light side, dark side, and then they really drive that home as mattering like nothing else when you get to the revelation at the end of that game with uh, Revan's identity. And, and it had everything it mattered. The writing was amplified and elevated because of the implications of these decisions. I mean, now it really mattered what you decided at every turn because of your identity. So kind of showing how they can support each other when, when they're both done with such elegance. And, and that's a good point. I mean, I think both mechanics and story are definitely important, but I mean, in a way, I would say for me, this when I play a role-playing game, I tend to play more for the story. Uh, but still, when you do have fun battlefield mechanics, that certainly helps it as well. Um, you know, because when you got a game like, I mean, I don't, with Final Fantasy, no, Dave, you had said you'd played Final Fantasy XV. Um, have you mm-hmm. completed it yet? Or Oh, yeah, I put well over 100 hours into it. Yeah, I I beat it at, I I took 86 hours for me to beat the game, but I'm still going back and doing stuff that I missed. So, but yeah, that's one of the things I like about the game is yeah. While the game mechanics are fun, the story is enough to keep you uh, wanting to play it for that, you know, 80 or more hours. When of course there's some games like, you know, your 
sometimes if a game just falls flat on its face, you don't want to play it for any longer than 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, Gabe mentioned that, this uh, this email that uh, a listener had sent in, and he gave two excellent examples of exactly, I think, what we're saying here, uh, and that's that you can have a game with really good combat mechanics, which in his example was Legend of Ligaia. Uh, and, and, you know, I was telling Gabe, I can tell you all about that battle system, but I don't remember an ounce of that story. I don't remember anything I did in that game other than battle. Uh, and then the other side of the coin, you have Final Fantasy X, which is is beautiful, and it has a charm to it. It's got a great story, but the battle mechanics are tedious and, you know, uh, cumbersome. It, it's, it's not a really good experience. And so, you know, you have a game like, I like 15 uh, a lot. I thought 15 was a really nice blend uh, of, of story and combat because... To your point, uh, it, it is the story that compels you to keep going, uh, but it's the combat that makes it so enjoyable to keep going. Yeah, and I think it can be difficult to hit that sweet spot because um, I think um, – well, there's this there was this article I read in – I don't remember if it was Game Informer or Electronic Gaming Monthly, but it was called Why Do Video Game Stories Suck?, and, <laughs> you know, they were, the author of the article was talking about, well, he, I think he made a good point. It's like, okay, why do some of these stories just, they don't captivate you. They're not very memorable. And one of the things he was, points he was making is that usually they focus mostly on the game mechanics and the actual programming, which I can understand. I mean, I know it takes a lot of time and a lot of work to program a video game. Uh, especially when you do start looking at these more complex games like Final Fantasy XV. And so usually the story does come second, where they don't start to write the story until they've gotten a lot of the game mechanics stuff fleshed out. So, but yeah, I I think for me, I would have to say story edges out the mechanics for me by a bit. Yeah, and I think sometimes, especially in modern development, uh, it just depends on how a studio is situated. And of course, payroll has a significant thing, uh, a, a factor to play in that. But, you know, not every studio is blessed with a team of writers. And uh, and then sometimes, even if they have a team of writers, they don't necessarily interact with, say, a gameplay design team. And that was one of my favorite things about working at BioWare was kind of seeing how that exists like how you know under one roof you can have these two teams kind of working independently but also having very specific check-in points where they have to collaborate and you know when you had say like a a, a dragon age team of six to eight writers uh is not the same six to eight writers working on mass effect uh and and so on and the gameplay designers you know are, are broken up across franchises but the one consistent thing that holds it all together is that collaboration effort because the writers may come up with super in-depth lore. That's fantastic. um, But what they want to create may not be technologically possible. And that's where it's time. uh, The time comes for them to get with a gameplay design team and say, if we can't do this, what would you recommend? And it was just so cool watching that, uh, come to pass, you know, so that you could play a game like Dragon Age Inquisition and be like, 
cool, this has a really good mixture of in-depth story and fun battle mechanics. I, I, I hope that more uh, developers are going to get to that level at a certain point. And again, not everybody is blessed with that kind of payroll, but I think that that's, that's really what's going to shape you know, the future of this genre. Yeah, and that's a good point, because you made the you know, comment of how, yeah, the the artistic, the artistic end of the the production team, they might not have necessarily have the technical grasp, so they might have this cool idea for, you know, some ability that a character can use, and they might describe, okay, it does this, this, and this. But the person who actually has to program how that ability is going to be implemented might be like, do you realize how hard it would be to code that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, because it was kind of funny. Um, I used to work at a planetarium for many years, and uh, there was a, a conference I was at where they uh, there's this digital star projector called the Digistar, and you know it uses a light to draw things as opposed to just well, you know, the classic old style planetarium projectors. I don't know if you've ever seen one where it's got the big ball on one end and well, the Digistar was just like a little uh, pedestal that sits in the center of the room. And I remember at a conference, it's like they did a, someone was showing a demo where they had this big dancing skeleton. And, you know, of course, when you show it to the public, everyone's like, Oh, that's awesome. But, you know, of course a programmer you're looking at, it's like, Whoa, that must've been hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, and it's it's true because if you if you if you could be a fly on the wall listening to developers talking to other developers and not even just like developers under the same roof, you know, it's it's like the GDC that happens once a year in uh, San Francisco, the Game Developer Conference, and you kind of have uh you know people from all over the industry come together. And it's it's not, not this big competitive thing you know it's not a group of people that are sitting around you know uh, complaining about like oh you know they they made you know dishonored and blah 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 whatever there's not that weird competitive nature usually it's a gush fest you know of everybody you know just kind of uh slobbering all over everybody and saying how much they love their games and then they have conversations about how did you guys do that you know (laughs) uh and and it's it's just it's fascinating to kind of see this exchange in knowledge. Like it, it's not we're sitting on a big secret we're never going to tell you. It could be that a, a team may have proprietary software, of course, you know, like uh, or or engines or um, different tools that are exclusive to their studio. But it, but it's no secret, you know, how the the ones and zeros get coded into a game. Yep. So. I, I love seeing that, that this, you know, kind of community of developers that embrace each other and, and they celebrate each other's games. You know, there was a time when you like say social media is in its infancy, right? Like Twitter is, is a new thing and you would never see, uh, you know, Konami send out a congratulations uh, tweet to Capcom on the release of Resident Evil 7. You know, you wouldn't see that. Nowadays, that is so commonplace. You see that all the time. Moving on, uh, we talk about stories, and this is one of the things that I think uh, we just wanted to talk about. Is we sometimes hear the term JRPG, which are mm. you know your Japanese role playing games, and you know the Western RP style RPGs. So, 
do you have do you have any preference towards either one? Because from what I've understand, there is a bit of a stylistic difference between them and how they can be implemented. And For sure. Unfortunately, some people use JRPG as a derogatory term, like it's it's somehow inferior. Uh, trust me, as a a fan of Dungeons and Dragons, you hear a lot about that with the different editions of the D and D, where you know, some people think, okay, fourth edition is a load of, of horse poop. And then you've got some people, they think that, you know, the earlier editions sucked and the newer editions are really the best. But uh, from, you know, what I understand, usually the, the Japanese ones, they tend to be more story and more character driven. Uh, usually your characters are going to have more distinct personalities and one of the things I like is when they change over the course of the adventure, uh, just as more, probably one of the best examples I can think of off the top of my head would be Cecil from Final Fantasy IV. You know, he's, he's definitely not the same character at the start of the adventure as he was at the end of the game. And, you know, really you look at, I think the storytelling for games has gotten a bit more intelligent. Uh, again, you look at Final Fantasy IV, perfect perfect retelling of the hero's journey you know so if you're into joseph campbell and the whole hero with a thousand faces and the monomyth but then when you get to the the western rpgs they tend to be more blank slate a good example might be wizardry you create yeah you it's nice you create your own characters but they don't really have a distinct personality and you can even say the same thing about final fantasy one yeah it's cool you can choose what four characters you want but, okay, fighter, if you choose two fighters, for example, fighter one doesn't have any different personality than fighter two. So one of the criticisms that a developer from Square, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, um, Motomu Toriyama, his mm-hmm. criticism with the Western approach to making role-playing games is that the emphasis on the whole open world made it a lot harder to tell a good, coherent story when you can pretty much do whatever you want. Where, well, some people like that, but the thing about the linear approach is it does make it easier to tell a very coherent story. So what are some of your thoughts on that with, you know, the way storytelling has changed and the whole idea of the Western-style RPGs versus the Japanese-style RPGs? Uh, I would suggest that the turn-based combat is is one of the first things I think about with a JRPG. And again, that that can, I suppose, have different forms. But I think Square kind of set the standard that, that people turn to where you wander around on a map, whether you're going through a dungeon or whatever on the world map, you get pulled into a, a random battle that generally presents itself from a pulled back perspective with you on one side, your, your party on one side, and then your, your group of enemies on the other. You go through and select from a very similar style of menu that gives you the options to, you know, attack with a weapon, pull up magic, go to your items, run. And that's that's really just a back and forth that plays out relatively similar, or at least generally speaking, that's one of the core fundamental things that I think of with the JRPG. And then again, with the story, there's, there's, there's you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe you're an orphan, you know, maybe you find out something about your lineage halfway through the game that you didn't know about some powers you have. I mean, these tropes that are taken from anime are pretty common in these things. And 
you know, I guess these are just the first things that come to my mind when I think of JRPGs, usually a world map, usually different cities. Uh, Dave, what do you got going for, for JRPGs? Yeah, when I think of JRPGs, I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, is that they are quirky um, and, and definitely loaded with personality. Um, I think because of cultural differences between the East and the West, you may find that JRPG developers are willing to take more chances uh, than you would see with like a, a Western developer. Uh, I think Western developers are very straightforward. So think like Avengers, right? Like uh, something in the MCU where they're they're not complicated uh, to watch. You know, they're they're built as popcorn flicks that you just enjoy uh some you know so probably gonna be loaded with humor and eighteen thousand action sequences and, and that's cool that's that's what we want from that experience um i think that western development follows a similar uh design style when it comes to that stuff um you know i i, I really think again I go i keep going back to quirky because <laughs> you know that that traditional jrpg is just going to have some really bizarre stuff uh, that is, is going to have like its its own charm. It, it may be weird, and and you know you may have um, you know, the early days of like the big head, little body characters, and, and things like that. They're, they're you know they're just going to take, like I said, kind of sometimes bold uh, direction with their games. Uh, whereas like Western developers. All answer to stockholders, and and they got to make sure they create something that appeases the people that are paying their salaries. Because if this game doesn't sell two hundred and fifty thousand units, then it's going to be a disaster, and blah blah blah. So they do a whole bunch of focus testing to make sure that they're striking while the iron is hot on any given idea that's in the game. So in that regard, I, I think Western development is is far more restricted. They just they don't take chances. It's it's a formula. And that's what, what they do to pump out games. Yeah, and, and I, I understand what you're saying, and I, I definitely agree with you there, Dave, that if you if they're more concerned about ma- – so basically you're saying they're more concerned about making a game that they know is going to be financially successful as opposed to creating an accidental hit. Right. Where Japanese developers tend to be more – they want to make a good game with a good story – and while it would be nice if it went on to sell hundreds of thousands of copies, they at least want to have it. They at least wanted to break even and make enough profit so they can continue developing games. Right, sales be damned. They are not going to be stifled creatively. And and I think a really good example of that is the Saga series that Square <laughs> has been putting out for for a long time. Um, you know, I was working as a as a retail buyer. Uh, when Unlimited Saga uh, it came out on the PS2, and uh, Square Enix was one of my accounts, and I remember, uh, you know, the obviously they're a, a Japanese company, but they have a, a Western uh, office that handles, you know, North American sales and things like that. And I remember working with my counterpart, and you know, he's just kind of beating his head against the wall because he has to try to market this game uh, to a Western audience. And as like a kind of like a, a joke internally, they referred to the game as Unsellable Saga. <laughs> and, you know, it's just one of those things where artistically, the, the design, uh, development team made exactly the game they wanted to make. 
but who is it for? And and that that's a very uh, a very honorable and, and uh, traditional effort on the JRPG side. You would absolutely not see that in Western development. Um, again, it just you know my experience is working at EA, uh, and I assume it's very similar across most Western uh, publishers. There's just a very formulaic process with several checkpoints, several people that have to give it the green light, advance it to the next person, and it has to go through so many checks and balances before somebody at the top of the ladder stamps it and says, go make it. Yep. So one of the things that I think we've gotten spoiled with uh, for, you know, with, with living in the modern age, thanks to online emulators and fan translations, I think it's easier to seek out some of these older RPGs that were maybe just released in Japan so we can actually get a chance to play them. So are there any RPGs that maybe you've heard about, you've never played, but you've always wanted to give a shot? You've always wanted to to have a chance to play it? Well, one that comes to mind for me was the uh, sequel to Secret of Mana, which I think was remade as Final Fantasy Adventure on the original black and white Game Boy, if I'm not mistaken. That could be a crazy yeah, false there's, memory. But. Yeah, there's like, uh, I've seen, I think if you ever watch the YouTube uh, channel for Pro Jared, um, he's he's talked a little bit about that. And I've, I've heard other people talk about it as well, where the whole like Final Fantasy Adventure and, and Final Fantasy, yeah, the, the Final Fantasy Adventure series for the... Uh, Game Boy was actually a port of something that was from uh, the the Mana series, where it gets a little confusing. But yeah. <laughs> so on the, and on that note, what, what, you know, to your question, we get stuck with these whatever version of that they squeeze out and then ship over to US, and we don't get to play what I hear was one of the most amazing games ever. And, and you know, I've been hearing about that since I don't know for twenty years or whatever that. Boy, oh boy, was it Seeking Densetsu 3? I'm not sure what the actual pronunciation was, but yep, I'd sure like to give that game a try, all right? And, and I did enjoy it, by the way, Final Fantasy Adventure. That was a cool time. And then they had, what, Legends 1, 2, and 3 that were more traditional, like turn-based fights, whereas the actual adventure was that top-down swinging a sword, kind of like uh, Crystallis or Zelda, for example. Yeah. yeah, that's how I recall it. Because uh, I, I played a little bit of one of them. I can't remember which one it was. Um, Another one that another one of those games that well I've I've played this one so it doesn't fit into the current topic there but when you're mentioning some of these more obscure Final Fantasy games that aren't part of the main numbered series uh, one of them Mystic Quest and I know it's one of those games that takes a lot of heat and I am not ashamed to admit I'm one of those people that genuinely enjoys it I still one of my favorite games yeah not very difficult. But it had a rock and soundtrack, and it was still just a fun little game to play through every now and then. Well, and shame on people who have an opinion on whether you should or should not enjoy something. <laughs> I, I certainly will have. I'll have my opinions, and I'll, I'll say things that are contrary to that statement. But um, you, you know, I, I just on that title in particular, when my youngest son was, I don't know, nine or so, it was the perfect game to throw in. I couldn't throw him at Final Fantasy VII or or three or anything like that. So. It was a great way to, to get his feet wet, and I think that kind of led to him getting into the uh, Pokemon games and really exploring role-playing games. So I was grateful to have it there as, as a great bridge between what I enjoyed and what he could enjoy. Yeah, and that's cool, because I said that's one of the things that 
is nice about Mystic Quest, uh, I mean, part of the reason for the design choices they made was because um, at the time it was released in the U.S., you know, the console RPGs hadn't really found their their market quite yet. So they the Square thought that, you know, for the American audiences, well, they want something where there is going to be that mix of action and, you know, adventure. And, but yeah, it is a good stepping stone, as you put it, as you mentioned there, where, you know, maybe you've got a younger child and you don't want to throw them into a more, you don't want to throw them into a more complex game, but Final Fantasy Mystic Quest serves as a really good, you know, entry point. Absolutely. It's a great primer uh, for anyone who was maybe curious about role-playing games, but wasn't sure if it was for them. Uh, It's a fantastic uh, direction to go to see if, you know, give you a taste and see if you like it. Okay. So then again, more about, and then just answer my own question before. And uh, because Gabe, you answered it. Dave, did you, you didn't get a chance to answer yet. So man, I I tell you, uh, I was such a huge fan of, uh, of the original Grandia. And and I know that like they, they went on to make sequels that did um, come out stateside, but they weren't necessarily tied to the storyline from the original game. And in Japan, they did make a, uh, I want to say it was either Game Boy Color or Game Boy Advance, I can't remember which, but they, they made a sequel uh, that actually followed the characters from the original uh, game. And, and I, I've been told that it, it's it's not much of a game. Uh, you know, it's definitely not the same experience as Grandia was, but at the same time, I, I, I grew to love these characters so much, these kind of two main characters, that I, I would have loved more time with them, even if it was just kind of a, you know, slap together, you know, cash grab on, yeah. on Game Boy. I, I still <laughs> would have loved to have played it. Yeah, and one game that I'd say I would love the opportunity to play, because I've heard a lot about it, Sweet Home where it was it was an early survival horror style RPG where the plot revolved around a group of of uh I'm not sure if they were well they had varying occupations like there was a, like a nurse there was a photographer uh there was a historian or whatever but they had to go into this this mansion to photograph different paintings and uh, you needed each of the characters at certain points, but unlike most RPGs, once a character dies in that game, they're out of the game permanently. Um, so if, well, let's say there's a, you know, a point where you need the historian, or I forgot what the character's occupation was, but you know, if he dies, fortunately there's still an item you can get that would let you still progress through the game. But I think it sounds like an interesting game because. In most RPGs, okay, someone dies, you just sprinkle some Phoenix down on them. You know, the only time that they're actually going to die is if it's vital to the plot. Like, you know, like Aerith or um, Tella or, uh, of course, there's tons of other examples. But I just thought that sounded like an interesting concept for a game. Yeah, I'd play that. did, Did Fire Emblem... Go that route. Is that right? Where you lose, if you lose somebody in Fire Emblem, they're gone. Yeah, I think there was think one of them that did that. Yeah. I, th- I thought I heard that. And uh, gosh, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm remembering wrong, but I thought. Well, that the, the Suikoden series did that too. Cause you know, you had the 108 stars of destiny that you could go and recruit. And then like, in addition to just standard 
turn-based random battles, you had those like big army battles, and occasionally one of your 108 stars of destiny could die like in those battles and they were gone. Like you couldn't, you couldn't revive them. Yeah. So, so it, save your memory card spots. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, again, I think that sounds like an interesting concept because it forces you to be careful where, you know, a traditional final fantasy game. Okay. If one of your characters dies or is close to dying during the fight. Okay. If you don't get around to healing them, you know, you can always bring them back after the battle. Whereas, like I said, from what I've heard in Sweet Home, if one of your characters is about to die, you better heal them or you're going to have to kiss them goodbye. Oh, jeez. So <laughs> earlier on, uh, you guys had met, you mentioned Crystallis and how you would like to see that game remade, which I have to agree with you on that. Uh, Crystallis was a lot of fun. And I think it would be cool to see it redone in a, a modern setting. But what are some other role-playing, video role-playing games that you would like to see remade? Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you that, that uh, Legend of Lagaya. I'd be, I'd be curious to see what somebody could do today with that kind of combo combat system. And also adding a story might be kind of cool for that game, too. Um. Because, you know, we talked at length recently about the value of a remake, the value of a reboot, and, and what you can get from that, and whether we want it or not. You know, Final Fantasy VII provoked the conversation. Uh, you know, the, the most recent news that they're transitioning that to an action combat system versus uh, the turn base that was originally in, in the PS1 release. And, and it really kind of makes me wonder whether I want this Final Fantasy VII remake or not. And I, I just kind of question the idea in general um, was there anything that that could have been improved on the original Ghostbusters, you know, without regard to whatever particular direction they did or didn't go with the remake? I would argue that they didn't need to remake a movie that's already a 10 out of 10 for me. So so I think that it, we have to have a certain kind of game to, to want to introduce that. And I, I had mentioned uh, Star Tropics is a game that I thought would be great to reboot because... I have really fond memories of Star Tropics, oh, yeah. but there's no beloved storyline they're going to destroy. You know, you can you can approach that very easily today and tell a really cool story, I'm sure, and probably expand on a lot of the really cool gameplay mechanics they had. And I'd love to see that, but but the point is, is, I don't have a lot of affection for the story, so I'm a lot less concerned about somebody doing it wrong. Whereas with Final Fantasy VII remaking that, it's going to be so easy to make my eyes roll at you know any given moment. There can be 17 things that could upset me if they do them wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, and yeah, and when you talk about, especially with Final Fantasy VII, I, since that's a game that a lot of people have very fond memories and very strong attachments to, uh, and you mentioned Ghostbusters, the movie, which, yeah, I can you know certainly understand that as well, where, yeah, if they do it wrong, they're going to upset a lot of people. Now, in my case, uh, with the whole Final Fantasy VII remake, if it does come to Xbox One or maybe Steam, I actually would consider picking it up. Now, since I've never played the first Final Fan, the original Final Fantasy VII, I wouldn't have as much of the expectations um, that you know that you might, since you've you know you have a lot of experience playing it. Which I think is one thing that can certainly influence how we see or how we react to a remake or a reboot. With, without a doubt. And like Dave, like you were saying earlier, are, are you going to buy it one way or another? Are you going to buy it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm absolutely going to buy it. I mean, I mean it, it, the game means too much to me to not at least check it out. Um, there's absolutely 
things that I have very strong reservations about, but at the same time, I just, I, I can't not check it out. Exactly. And I'd have to say that playing Final Fantasy 15 really changed my opinion because for the longest time, I was afraid to try new video RPGs because I was still stuck in the, you know, back in the 16-bit era when everyone was lined up on the side of the screen, you know, stepping forward, swinging their weapon, casting their spell, whatever, and then stepping back into place. Um, whereas, you know, said Final Fantasy 15 really changed my opinion. And it's like, you know, maybe this more, you know, action-oriented approach can still be enjoyable. And I forgot if it, which one of you guys said it, but you mentioned that, uh, like, Final Fantasy 15 was like a single-player MMO. Yeah. So It really feels that way. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I... Having played Final Fantasy 15 now, I think fi- the fi- I would like to check out the Final Fantasy 7 remake if it's going to be similar to how they implemented 15. Mm-hmm. So, Dave, do you have any games that you would like to see remade? You know, uh, several. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think one of the things that has always been weird for me is that um, you know, I grew up as a, as a Sega kid uh, just because that, that was what was in the house. Um, so, you know, while everybody else was kind of getting to play Final Fantasy and Dragon Warrior, I, I didn't get to experience those until later. So I, I got to start with the Fantasy Star series. So it, it always has a special place, you know, in my heart as, as far as RPGs go. But but even above that, the original Fantasy Star is an incredible RPG. Uh, I, I don't know that the series continued as, as strong as it started and, and certainly... Um, it, it wasn't, I can't think of another one in the series that I would point to as, as one of my favorites of all time, other than PSO, which you, you may or may not even count since it's, it's an online game. But, uh, I, I think that there are so many people that missed out on the original fantasy star because it was exclusive to a console that was only owned by uh, such a small amount of people. So I, I would love to see somebody get a hold of that game uh you know somebody it doesn't even necessarily have to be sega but if somebody could get a hold of that game and and redo it bring it into uh the modern era so that people can experience what was so good about it because it it, it's one of those games that um i'm I'm avoid spoilers here but one of those (laughs) games where the original goal that you're given could not be more simple than there's an evil wizard kind of overseeing everything and trying to, you know, uh, just run amok right on this, this peaceful planet. And, and the lead, the lead character's brother dies. And that's really all you need to jumpstart this adventure. But by the time you get farther and further into the game, you realize that there's more at play than you think. And those are the kind of stories that I can really sink my teeth into with, even if they give you all this great information in the beginning, there's still so much left that you don't know until you keep playing. Yep. And I'd have to say for me, one game I would love to see remade, uh, Pool of Radiance, how you know it was made using the first edition rules, but I would love to see it remade using maybe some of the you know the current fifth edition D and D rule set. So I think they could do a lot of fun things with that if they were to remake it, because it, it had a good plot. And it was very open world, 
where there were a lot of little subplots that you didn't have to do. Um, also, you had your customizable party, which is always, you know, for me, that's always a, a fun thing about games, or it's always a plus. Uh, but the other thing I was like, I also liked about it is it had multiple endings. Well, it just had two. It had a, it had a good ending and a bad ending. But as I said that's another game that I think is worth, definitely worth a remake. Oh yeah. Well, I think we're gonna end this episode here. Uh, so I'd like to thank uh, you guys for taking the time to be on my show with me. So, where if people want to take a listen to Destination unknown podcast or if they want to contact you guys how can they do it well we we are available uh wherever uh, podcasts can be found uh that you know itunes google play um if you're a uh, a podbean user you can find us in the app under destination unknown podcast uh we have new episodes uh, every monday so uh, always uh, always glad to uh hear people's uh, thoughts feedback interact with us we, we love to hear, uh, you know, people's ideas for uh, topics that they want us to expand upon. Um, we can be emailed at destinationunknownpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, again, destinationunknownpodcast at gmail.com. So uh, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for having us. And, and it's really fun conversation. Yeah, I, I gotta, I gotta say, I really, really appreciate the invitation. But more than that, it was a highly enjoyable conversation. It's, it's uh, good when you know you're talking to your own kind, and that, that was a great, great time. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> and, and yeah, that's one of the things I, one of the things I, I like about video games is, yeah, it's something that can connect people. Where, you know, okay, maybe you're just sitting at a bus stop or something, and you know, the, you see the person next to you is wearing a Final Fantasy VII t-shirt. You know, well, now you've got an instant bond that you guys can talk about. So, yeah, it was fun talking with you guys. So, uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us, and uh, would definitely recommend to listeners, if you have a chance, check out the Destination uh, Unknown podcast, also conveniently located on Podbean. So with that said, I'd like to wish you all a good evening, morning, afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Do you do a podcast about Dungeons and Dragons, role-playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross-promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network, or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com and we'll set something up.